You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Um, and a fervency that is not toxic, that is not rooted in coercion or threat, but it's rooted in your, our, passion and love for Jesus and the work that he continues to do, even if we slow down for seasons and years or have COVID or go through pandemics and political upheaval. He's still doing the work he's always been doing and will keep doing it until eternity is over, which is a very long time. So it's important that we get together spontaneously. It's important that we encourage each other and it's important that we have some sort of intimate prayer time with a few of us. I didn't make a big deal about this. I didn't ask the elders, deacons, and trustees to send out text messages. I wanted a few people who wanted to be here to be here and to just try to catch something with me, just try to catch this vision for a reclaiming of our passion, our pursuit, our excitement for the things of God to get to the point where as we talk outside of church, it's not long before we're having deep discussions about the things of God like we used to. It's not long before we're praying with each other again. It's not long before the thousands of decisions we make in a day are back to those decisions being made with the Jesus conversation in our head, in our mind. Going home to our families and showing them strength and security, our friends, strength and security, our jobs, the strength and security in us that comes from our openness to Christ. Like We have to get back to some of these things. And it has to not be a program or a campaign. It has to be simple invitations to share the Lord's table and to talk about his word for a little while and to pray together. And so with that said, why don't you stand to your feet briefly. I'm going to pray a few things before we talk about the Eucharist, Mary, and our prayer life. After I say amen, your response is, Lord, have mercy. Hear the commands of God to his people. I am Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. You shall not make for yourselves any idol. Amen. You shall not invoke with malice the name of the Lord your God. Amen. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Amen. Honor your father and your mother. Amen. You shall not commit murder. Amen. With weapons or our mouths. You shall not commit adultery. Amen. You shall not steal. Amen. You shall not bear false witness. Amen. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Amen. Jesus said the first commandment is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is only the Lord our God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. While I pray this prayer of repentance, why don't you close your eyes and offer to Jesus the offering of your sin, that he might take it, do something with it, and hand us back a life of righteousness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. May Almighty God have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit keep you in eternal life. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to read a few verses here, and then I'm probably just going to like ask anybody who has a Bible and can flip through it to go to various verses as we move through this study real quick. So I want to hear people read. I want to hear people go for it. We can get through all of this. We can get through 25% of this. We can get through none of this. We'll see what happens. So I'll read a few verses first. Genesis 1. Verses 1 through 3, possibly the most read verses in the entire Bible, because we all start on January 1st very well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then in Luke chapter 22, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And in a healthy way, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And then finally, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. This is after Jesus has ascended. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The word of the Lord. So I just want to, I'm just going to begin sharing, and uh, again, 
I'll tell there's there's a certain point where you can actually like write specific things down that I have here, but for for a minute, I mean feel free to write down whatever you want to write down, but for a minute I I, w- I literally want to like I want you to catch this. I don't want it to be academic. I want you to catch something that I think like a, a, a healthy virus that I caught with this. I want you to catch it. Like I want to sneeze this onto you, but that's okay. First of all, we've said this before, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace. So the Eucharist, the easiest one to explain of all of them, is an outward and visible sign of an inward and visible grace that is actually happening when you participate in the sacrament. So what this looks like is what's happening in you when you participate in it. And what makes a sacrament a sacrament is that Jesus instituted it. Jesus told us to do this. And so the voice that said, let there be and there was, is the voice that touches this stuff and says something over it so that it becomes in us what it is, right? And so it's food and it's drink. It's the healing of brokenness. It's God bringing redemption through suffering. Like it is the sacrament that does the things that it looks like it does. Another definition, an easier definition of sacrament is it's a sign that does the thing it signifies like a stop sign that actually makes you stop. So imagine a red light that makes you stop or a stop sign that makes you stop. This, these sacraments are signs that do the thing that they're signifying. So we're going to talk about this in a couple of ways, but to, to celebrate a tree that is three, four, five hundred years old, like, a, like the tree outside of the monastery um, in West Park where Brother Randy resides, there's this tree that's in all of the original pictures of the monastery, it looks the same as it does now because it's stupid old, right? Like it's a very old tree. And as Brother Randy would tell you, and as any environmentalist would tell you, when you see a tree like that that's impressive, the most impressive part about it is the soil that it's growing out of. It's good soil. It's got a good root system. It's healthy. That's why it survived every storm imaginable up to that point in that area, and it's still grown. And the sacraments, if they're a tree, if they're a beautiful tree, with, and the sacraments are fruit that Jesus left us to interact with his physical presence while he's somehow mysteriously here but not physically here what is the soil that these sacraments grow out of it's the incarnation of jesus it's god putting on creation itself not just humanity but god putting on the dust of the earth and wearing all of creation as his garment the incarnation is the primordial Sacrament, meaning Jesus does the thing that he signifies, right? Jesus on the cross does the thing that it looks like he's doing. It's happening in you because Jesus is doing it. Jesus is the thing that signifies exactly what it's doing. So when you close your eyes and you think of whatever Jesus is to you, whatever that vision is, when you close your eyes and you think about Jesus, he's doing in you. The thing that he purports to do, like a stop sign that makes you stop. He's the primordial sacrament. He's 
he's the soil that all of the means of grace of the church. You ever been to a hot prayer meeting, a deliverance meeting, uh, seeing people be baptized in the Holy Spirit, going to ordinations, <laughs> going to baptisms, going to weddings, hearing that you're forgiven of your sins. The moment where, you know, your friends and family, your pastor reminds you that, yes, you've made mistakes, but there's a world of redemption ahead of you and the feelings that come with that. All of that are the sacraments working, and they all come from the fact that God assumed all of creation to wear, because that's exactly what he's redeeming. He heals that which he put on. I just want you to catch. I don't want you to understand everything necessarily. I want you to catch the beauty of what's happening here. God is at work in the midst of us in a way that is very easy for us to miss, but super glorious if we don't. All right, so somebody, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read this one. Somebody go to Mark 6, and somebody go to Matthew 4. Somebody go to Mark 6, and somebody go to Matthew 4. I'll start with Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to this description, this prophetic description of Jesus. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So why so much debate over this? How scandalous it is that we would say that this somehow becomes one of the ways that since we were little kids hearing about Jesus, we said, I want to touch him. I want to be in his presence. I want to feel what it's like to be around him. I want to know what it's like to behold the one who saved my soul. And then somebody one day tells you it happens in this. And we say, that's superstitious. There's no way. It's a symbol, but it's not actually him. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. And then we read in Isaiah, he was boring looking. He was despised. He didn't have form or beauty that we would behold him. We looked at him and said, that cannot possibly be the way that God would show up. Still happens. Somebody read Mark 6, 1 to 3. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, and uh, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So again, he had no former majesty that we should behold him. And all the, through the 2000 history, 2000 year history of the Christian church, there are some churches that build tabernacles around this bread because they know he's in this simple looking thing. Anthony just got to see uh, a Coptic or Orthodox church that really lets you know they care about the Eucharist when they look at the way the building is built around it, literally. 
2,000 years, he's just remained hidden, despised and rejected, without form or appearance that we should behold him. We would look, oh, no, no, not not there. Surely he has to be, if he's going to be in something, it's got to be in something way more glorious, like, you know, a 70-foot screen in church on a Sunday, something like that. It could not possibly be. And then Anthony just read, Jesus shows up to his hometown, and they are so familiar with him that they say, this, he cannot be the one making these claims. We know his dad. We know his mom. We've been to their shop. We grew up with him. Like, we remember when he got in trouble with our kids. Like, this cannot possibly be the one. Is this, are we not talking about bread so utterly common that it has no former appearance that we would even notice it unless you're starving? Which preaches. It is so familiar. This isn't the most exciting thing. There he is. Somebody read Matthew 4, 1 to 3. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Think about it. In all the Gospels... These, all the three temptations of Jesus, the last two are in differing orders. Some of the Gospels have Jesus being tempted to jump off the temple first. Another Gospel has uh, Jesus being tempted to worship the kingdoms of the, to worship Satan for the kingdoms of the world first. But all of them have this temptation first. That Satan already sees what we have trouble seeing. That Jesus is bread. He already sees it. He's already tempting Jesus with who Jesus already is and what Jesus will be for us. Uh, one of the church fathers said it this way. Satan was tempting Jesus to turn stone into bread so that we would forget that our job is to pray that bread becomes his flesh. Satan was tempting Jesus to turn stone into bread so that we would forget that our job is to pray that bread becomes his flesh. He already saw what we struggle to see, that God resides in this fruit of the earth and will offer it to us until he returns. This is how, this is how we meet, touch, and interact with the presence of God in a physically tangible way. And it sets the stage for all the other things. Everything else going through your head right now. Well, I've experienced him in prayer. Yes, you have. I've experienced him in the Bible. Yes, you have. I've experienced him in my brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, you have. I've experienced him during work days when we have conversations and when I go for a walk in the morning or in the evening or I fall in love with my spouse all over again or I see my children. Born. Yes, you experience him in all of these things because... He opened the door for us to experience him in created things through this. This is why we can experience him in all those other things. Because he decided in Genesis 1, the voice that said, let there be, spoke over bread and said, this is my body. And because of this sacrament, everything around us becomes sacramental. And we can experience him that way. Hey, can you take one of these and show me how to do that? I'm handing out a quote from 
a priest who lived from 1811 to 1868, St. Peter Julian. He, he ran a monastery, um, obviously for men, and uh, he had some thoughts. And this, I read this in a, in a devotional book that I have uh, about the Lord's Table. It's like a short reading every day about the Eucharist. And this was one of the readings, and it really stuck out to me. This was from August 1st in my devotional, and this is what made me want to have this meeting. St. Peter Julian said this, Eucharist adorers share Mary's life and mission of prayer at the foot of the most blessed sacrament. Let's just pause there for a second. Eucharist adorers share Mary's life and mission of prayer at the foot of the most blessed sacrament. So the way that Mary stood praying at the foot of the cross, we stand praying in front of the Eucharist on Sundays. It's how we stand with her at the foot of the cross. Now, let's just look at this very, very quickly. Somebody go to 1 Corinthians 10, and somebody else go to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'll give you a minute to do that while I explain. In Luke, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Everybody knows the story. And they go inside, and Jesus is preaching to them a sermon I wish we had, desperately wish we had, what he was saying there. And he puts, he breaks bread at the table after they sit down. And what does Jesus do after he breaks the bread? What does he do? Jesus on the road to Emmaus sits down with his disciples. He breaks bread. And then what does he do next? He disappears. He disappears. And as Chris Green said in a, in a sermon on this, he said, Christ broke bread and then disappeared so that for the next 2,000 plus years the church would know that Christ at the table has now become Christ on the table. So he disappeared in one way but remained present to them where? On the table. In the what? In the bread. In the bread. He broke bread and disappeared to show them that this is now where he is. This is where he is. So on Sunday... When we have communion together, there are three revelations of Jesus all happening at the exact same time. And just so everybody knows, this is being recorded. So if you're just, you can listen, it's being recorded. All at the same time, when you, when you are coming to the table to get bread, here's what's happening. Jesus is on the table feeding you. Jesus is at the table in the broken symbol of the priest or the elder offering you bread. And Jesus is coming to the table in the form of the body of Christ to eat. So all at once on a Sunday, there are three revelations of Jesus happening perfectly together when Eucharist is happening. Christ is presiding at the table in the broken symbol of the minister. Christ is on the table in the sacramental bread that has now become sacramentally his body. And Christ is coming to the table to eat the food that he is and to eat the food that he's given in the form of the body of Christ. It is one of the moments where there's a perfect revelation of Jesus happening. Jesus offering, Jesus being offered, and Jesus receiving all at once. He teaches us how to offer something. He teaches us how to be the thing that's offered. And he teaches us how to receive what's being offered to us. Tim. Isn't that a picture of the Trinity? It is. Very much so. 
ev- everything like that has, and that's what I mean by catching this. Like, thank you for that. Like, every one of these has that thumbprint, that fingerprint on it. Some more, some less, but it's always there. It's always there, and it's a perfect revelation of who he is, which is to say, it's a perfect revelation of who we are called to be everywhere at all times. We are called to be people who offer our things, who offer ourselves, and who receive and are okay receiving what we need that we don't have that needs to be offered to us. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 16. Therefore, my beloved, leave from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the, me, the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Listen to what he's saying. He's saying the cup that we bless, it is a participation in his blood. And the bread that we break, it is a participation in his body. The very first time Bishop Beth Owen, one of the retired but founding bishops of the CEEC, one of the first times she ever presided over the Eucharist when I was there physically, she called us, and we're going to do this in a little while, she called us all to the table and she did the Eucharist prayers with all of us there and she told a story about how when she was a girl, she would walk through the woods and she would pray that one day she'd be able to know what it's like to hold Jesus's hand. And then she went to seminary and she became a pastor and then she left that and became a priest and then she became a bishop and then they founded the CEC and she just got so caught up in like all this mission and movement and one day after she was done praying that it would become the body and blood, she picked up the bread and the Holy Spirit said, you're holding my hand. So she called us all around the table and said, close your eyes and think about the time that you most desperately wanted to be in his presence. It's happening. But it's happening in a way that Isaiah warns us might not be pretty enough. Or Mark warns us we might be too familiar with. And Satan warns us, I'm trying to mess with you on this. But Paul is saying it is a participation in his body and in his blood. It is. And then uh, somebody read 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Think about what Paul is saying. He hasn't said this about any other meal ever, anywhere, never did, never will, still doesn't. He is saying this meal, once blessed, right? That's what he says before. Once blessed is now so ferociously powerful that we need to actually come to it aware of ourselves. Open to what it can do. And realizing that it's going to purge us one way or another. No other meal is spoken of like this. No item in the tap. The only other thing that might be spoken of like this is Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. 
Think about it. Handle the presence of God with care. Uzzah, you can't just do what you want with it. Paul is literally drawing attention to the Ark of the Covenant story by saying, when you come to this bread and this wine that we bless, treat it with care because it's his presence. Think about what he's saying there. I'm going to move on. All right. Everybody okay? Yeah. Just catch this cold. Please catch this cold. The quote. Eucharist adorers share Mary's life and mission of prayer at the foot of the most blessed sacrament. It is the most beautiful of all missions, praying at, praying Eucharistically. And it is without danger. It is also the most sacred, for it is the exercise of all virtues. We're going to talk about all these things. It is the most necessary for the church, listen to this, which has much more need of souls of prayer than of preachers, of men of penance than men of eloquence. Today more than ever in the 1800s. Today more than ever, we want men who disarm by self-immolation the anger of God against the ever-increasing crimes of the nations. We must have souls who by their importunity reopen the treasures of grace. This is a line for us right now. That open the treasures of grace which general indifference has closed. Not rejection, just loss of interest. We must have true adorers, that is to say, men of fervor and of sacrifice. We're going to talk about that. When they have become numerous around the divine chief, God will be glorified, Jesus will be loved, and society will be Christian, conquered for Jesus by the apostolate of Eucharistic prayer. We're going to unpack that bad boy. It's not nearly as complicated as it sounds. So a couple, a couple more thoughts here before we get into that quote. John the Revelator. John the Theologian, John the Beloved. People don't know if that's three different Johns, all the same John, two John, whatever. The point is, there's a few people named John, one of whom we know exists in the Bible, as one of three disciples who become somehow uniquely the disciple who ends up doing what at the Eucharist? Come on, you all have heard these sermons 10 trillion times. What does John do that's different than everybody else when he's reclining with Jesus? He rests his head on him. And, we, and we, we've heard sermons about how his ear was pierced with revelation, and that's how he was able to articulate to the seven churches the greatest epistle in the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. So strong is the book of Revelation written to how many churches? Seven. That if you look at your table of contents... Paul himself writes to only seven different churches following the chief disciple, John. John writes to seven churches in Revelation. Paul writes to seven different churches in the canon of Scripture, right? And he's the preeminent expression of what it means to follow Jesus. He follows Jesus everywhere. He follows him through all of Jesus' life, through the Eucharist in a unique way, and even he's one of the few disciples who remains where? At the cross. At the cross. Okay? So John is for us what it means to be a full disciple of Jesus. And what does Jesus offer John at the cross? Who? 
his mom. Think about that trust. Jesus says, James, my blood brother, you heard it when Anthony read it. James, my blood brother is here. But John, you're taking mom home. Not James. You are. Because you've captured my heart and you will protect hers. You see that? So that means, you ready? First deep breath. That means that at the cross, would we all agree that that's where we gain our identity as Christians? At the cross of Jesus. And at the cross of Jesus is when we are transformed most into the image of God and we see the image of God most. Clearly defined in self-offering love, yes? It's in that moment that we realize part of our identity is that God is our father and Mary is our mother. And we are meant to take care of the life that we have written in the pages of scripture. And Satan has attacked the daylights out of this on two different sides. He's turned it into idolatry on the one side, and he's turned it into rejection of Mary on the other. So he's either turned Mary into a superstitious figure that disrupts the flow of worship. He's, because of that, also managed to get half the church to reject her entirely. And, like, think of how mad you got when somebody was like your mother. Imagine how Jesus feels by much of the Protestant church these days. My God, right? So, we got to be careful to get this right. But there's something about her life that we're supposed to take home with us. There's something about her life that we're supposed to follow, see, and emulate. And take care of and protect. That's very important. So, somebody go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And read verse 27 and 28. All right, guys. Go for it. Luke 11, 27, 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay. So this, this text right here has been used to denounce Mary. Blessed is the womb that bore you. And Jesus is like, rather, blessed is anyone who keeps my word and does it. He's not denouncing his mother. He's saying, don't be impressed with my mom's pregnancy. Be impressed with the way that she has kept God's word and will keep it, even through what I'm about to go through. That's what he's saying. Don't be impressed with how she bore me. Be impressed with how she's going to keep this word that was given to her faithfully and become the mother of the church. She, if Abraham's the father of our faith, Mary's the mother of our faith. And much more was demanded of her than was demanded of Abraham because Abraham got Isaac back that day. Mary didn't get to see a, a ram caught in a thicket. He died. And he didn't survive his death. He died. He died his death more than we'll ever die ours. Mary's life is a life of prayer. We're getting to the action points quickly. I'm moving through this very fast. I'm not saying a lot of things. 
Mary's life is a life of prayer. Mary's life is a life that is always spent at the feet of Jesus. It was Her life was spent at the feet of Jesus when he was a baby, washing them, right? Caring for them, picking them up when they tripped. Anybody remember the Passion of the Christ? One of the few things Mel got right in that was... As Jesus was falling with the cross, Mary was imagining him tripping as a, as a baby and her running to him to pick him up. And then she runs to him that moment. She's been at his feet a long time. She knows his feet better than any of us do. She wept at them at the cross. And as we'll talk about in a second, she was in the upper room when Jesus came back down still standing under those feet as he descends back down to her. She's been at his feet. And if she's truly taken to our home, we will watch her every day be there and we'll be there ourselves. She's the soil that the tree of life grew out of. And here's the thing. You ready? She never understood him. She never understood him. Why, why did you leave us for three days? Shouldn't you know? When he's 12, she doesn't understand him. <clears throat> then she goes to say, Jesus, your mother's calling you. You're all my mother. She's like, no, they're not. They did not do what I did. They didn't get chased down by Herod. Right? Like, they haven't carried the burden of all these other two-year-olds getting murdered and my son not because of my son. What are you talking about, Jesus? She, time and time again, they have no wine. My hour has not yet come. Okay, so you're not going to do it? I change the water into wine. I don't get you. You make no sense. But here's the thing. She, this is why she's important to us. She didn't understand Jesus. But she held everything she didn't understand about him perfectly. She treasured it in her heart. And didn't walk away from what she didn't understand. She lived in what she didn't understand day after day. And as Father uh, Bishop Romero says, Mary finally understood on Pentecost what she didn't understand for the rest of her life, who her son actually was. Think of Mary's experience in Acts chapter 2 as uniquely different than everybody else's, right? Like, her son died... She got to witness his murder. Traumatic. Then he raises, and she's like, I have him back. Think of a mother's elation at that point. Then he disappears again, and for 40 plus days, she doesn't see him anymore. Is it heartbreak again? Then his spirit shows up. She has to catch that spirit in a way that everybody else didn't. And if you think I'm wrong, ask a mom. (laughs) She'll tell you and sit you down and explain to you how Mary probably caught something that day that most people didn't. She finally understood. She held. She didn't react off of misunderstandings. She walked through them faithfully. We don't do this. When we understand something, we exploit it. When we don't understand something, we walk away from it. We don't hold things very well. But that's prayer, it's holding. She prays to Jesus. They have no wine. That's a prayer. She's talking to God. And what is her prayer that she prays to Jesus? 
Her prayer that she prays to Jesus is her noticing what you don't have that you should have and wants you to have it. Mary sees lack before anybody else does and wants to meet the need before anybody else realizes there is lack. They have no wine. They have no bread. They have no food. They have no justice. You name it. That's what she says to Jesus. She prays with Jesus. What is, what is the most famous thing that we know that Mary ever said? What is one of the most famous lines of Mary? Behold the handmaid of the Lord. What else? When the angel's talking to her. Be it unto me, according to thy word. Be it unto me. Now, think about this. Mary prays what? Be it unto me according to thy word, right? When Jesus' back is against the wall in Gethsemane, and he can't catch his breath because death is overtaking him in a way that we will never know, what does Jesus pray after he says, let this cup pass? What does he pray? Not my will, but... Where did he learn that? Be it unto me according to thy word. Not my will, thy will be done. He prays the prayer that his mom taught him to pray. We go to Jesus in the Bible and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And what prayer does he give us? They are Father. But while we're saying, Lord, teach us to pray, he was saying, Mom, teach me to pray. You know what? When your back's against the wall, just pray. Be it unto me according to thy will. And he never had to until he was faced with a death that was taking his breath away, literally. So she prays to him. She prays with him, be it unto me according to thy will. And she prays for him in silent holding at the foot of the cross. Maybe the most expressive of all of her prayers is the silent intercession of her standing there saying, I'm not leaving and I'm not interrupting. I'm just going to hold this moment. For you. She teaches us how to pray. The Spirit descends on her for the incarnation, and the Spirit doesn't descend again unless she's there. She, it descended on her to, to get her pregnant, and it, it the Luke wants you to know very specifically that Mary, it says the women were in the upper room and Mary. He wants you to know. That she's there specifically different than everybody else because the Spirit descends on her. That's why Jesus wants us to take her to our home. Because that's what the Spirit is most attracted to. Got a few more. She, the Spirit descends on her at the beginning of the Gospels, the Spirit descends on her in the upper room, which means that she's the Ark of the Covenant that holds the presence. She's the tabernacle that holds the presence. She's the temple that holds the presence. And she's the true and better Eve, the mother of all living, the world, that holds the presence. Now, you can see the dangerous line we're standing on here, and I'm sure you can feel the dangerous line we're standing on here. Anything that can be tempted to be turned into idolatry has to be something good enough to be to become an idol. Right? Satan never made poop an idol for a reason, right? Right? 
The New York Mets are not an idol for a reason. They're not good enough to be. The Yankees have become an idol for many people because they're good. And they've become a, a, you know, a trip up, a stumbling block. Pride, right? Power, pinstripes, ugh. Right? Something, it has to be good. And so you can see where Jesus is saying, if you're, God, if you're a disciple, then you've taken on my identity. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is, right? Taking on his identity. And if we've taken on his identity, then who's our mom? You don't want her to be? Then you haven't taken on his identity. Your choice. He won't force you. All right. Last line about Mary, and then we'll give everybody a break from talking about women. Just kidding. For anybody listening on the podcast, that was pure sarcasm. Matthew 23, 37. Somebody read that. Somebody else go to Leviticus 12. Somebody else go to Acts chapter 1. You ready? Somebody go to Matthew 23. Somebody go to Leviticus 12. Somebody go to Acts 1. And somebody go to Galatians 4. We're going to do this super fast. Matthew 23, Leviticus 12, Acts 1, Galatians 4. Okay, somebody read Matthew 23, verse 37. Not all at the same time. Twenty-three thirty-seven. In Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus, who is a man, likens himself to a female, saying, "This is how I long to love you." Okay. Now, this is going to get weird for a second, but it's fine. Leviticus 12, 1 to 4. Somebody read Leviticus 12, 1 to 4. Let's have fun. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying to the people of Israel, <coughs> Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be ceremonially unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she should be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Her time of blood purification shall be 33 days. She should not touch any holy thing or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Okay, so when a woman gives birth to a male child, she has to wait seven days for one purification and then 33 more days before she can go into the temple. How many days is that? 40 days after giving birth to a male child. Read, somebody read Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. This is only for people who like spooky things, just so you know. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. I love hearing pages turn. I haven't heard them turn in 1 to 3? 37 years, yeah. Acts 1, 1 to 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus didn't go into heaven for how many days? How many? 40. 40 days. So uh, if you read Fleming Rutledge's book, um, Crucifixion, she will tell you that the cross has a hundred different analogies to it. 
On the one hand, it's a wedding ceremony. The first Adam fell asleep and his side was open and a bride came out. The last Adam dies and his side is open and the bride is redeemed and reclaimed and the divorce that was issued through the prophets is now done away with and he's remarrying his people again, right? Like there's there's that analogy. There's a lot of different analogies. There's the sacrificial lamb where he's the forgiveness of the world. There's also this analogy where at the cross Jesus is giving birth to the new Israel, right? And when you read about Israel, what does God say about Israel? Israel is my firstborn son. So in one of the many analogies, Jesus is giving birth on the cross. The cross is the womb that the new Israel passes through. And the new Israel is a male baby, yes? And a woman after giving birth has to wait how many days before she can go into the temple? And Jesus waits how many days before he ascends to the temple of all temples? So he's like, he's, he's specifically wanting us to see these characteristics that he has picked up from his mom. Now somebody read Galatians 4.19. Galatians 4.19, Paul's talking. Alright. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's read 19. So, so, so kind in his pistol whipping of people, Paul is. What is he liking himself to? A woman in the anguish of childbirth. Until what? Jesus is formed in them. Where could they have learned? Who was in the anguish of childbirth until Christ was actually formed in them? So there's, there's already like bursting its way into the church. This theology that part of discipleship is what she has done for Jesus. For Jesus. And so... What do I want you to catch as now we're about to enter these action points here? What I want you to catch is this life of prayer, specifically starting at the Eucharist and then moving its way into all of the possible ways that prayer can happen, is this devotion. And more specifically, adoration. If I was going to title this and we were going to have screens and all this kind of stuff, it would have, this, this would have been called You're Adorable. That's what it would have been called for men. Wouldn't have went over well, just about as well as it just did when I said it just now. But the reality is, Christ is adorable. He is able to be adored. And our job is to adore him. And nothing, no, no reality on earth can teach anyone to adore more than a mother adores a child. Nothing. Theo has been sick for five days. He is so annoying to me right now, I can't even tell you. And somehow, I'm watching, like, jet fuel amounts of grace emanate from Jacqueline on how she is taking care of this kid. Like, not skipping a beat, 24-7, three or four straight days, 72 plus hours. She is locked in on making sure he's okay. No one can teach you how to adore something more than a mother who's adoring a child. If we're going to adore Jesus, we need to learn from what is given to us in the scriptures from the life of Mary. She adores him. 
She teaches us how to adore him. And that's what St. Peter Julian is saying here. So he says, the Eucharist, 10 minutes. He says, the Eucharist holds all the virtues. How does, how does prayer at the Eucharist hold all the virtues? It sees brokenness. The bread is actually broken. It holds brokenness. It doesn't get rid of it. And it doesn't try to put it back together. It holds it. It prays in the midst of it. It becomes thankful in the midst of it. And it offers it. These are none of the things that we do with our suffering. But that's where all the virtues are in there. Seeing brokenness and not rejecting it or trying to fix it right away. But holding it. Praying through it. Thanking God for it. And offering it. All the fruit of the Spirit exists in that. That is everything that is the life of Jesus. Holding brokenness. Praying for brokenness. Thanking God for what, it, what was, what's broken, and what will be put back together. And offering it out of his control to the Father. <laughs> just imagine you did that just one Monday a month. You literally took what's broken in your life, held it, thanked God for it, offered it back to him, and then said, in the midst of this brokenness that I'm going through, let me live my life in a way that holds other people's brokenness. You did it one day a month. You would see very quickly that you would grow in favor with God and with man, just like Jesus did. You would see that people, that your value to other people's lives is increasing every second that you're doing that. Henry Down says this in a letter to one of his parishioners. He says, in this letter, I simply want to encourage you to develop an intimate relationship with Jesus. God, who seems far away, is somewhat of a problem because he's so far. God is called powerful. God is called almighty, etc. Jesus, however, is God with us, vulnerable, weak, broken, dependent, and very approachable. Jesus is the God who needs us and asks us for our love. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? When you pray, look at Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart. We don't want a Jesus who wants our prayers because we don't want a needy Jesus because we don't want to be needy. But Jesus needed to know, Peter, do you love me? I need to know that you love me. I never saw it that way before because I've never been programmed to look at it that way before. But Jesus needed to know that Peter loved him as much as Jesus wanted Peter to love him for Peter's sake. But he also needed to know that Peter loved him. And he needs to know that you love him. Which means when you tell him you love him, you're providing for him. And does that sound scandalous? Yes, it does. But if we're not careful, it'll be so, that will be so despised that we will esteem it not. And not want to look at it. says he wants men of prayer not men of preaching and I'll say this very quickly communication with Jesus is vital <laughs> say that I, I laugh when I say that because I want to say something more catchy because everybody's going to be like yeah of course communication with Jesus is vital yes I know that but do you do I do we 
how much time goes by with news and podcast and work and other voices barreling through our heads and we struggle to give God 15 minutes in the morning and I bet you most of us never give him 15 minutes at night. When does Goliath come out, by the way? What, two times a day? In the morning and the evening. When should we really be spending time with Jesus? In the morning? Probably sometime around noon because that's the time he decided to die on the cross. Probably an important time of the day. And at night. We will say... It's, well, it's really hard for me. But honest to God, take a ledger of what you're giving time to and really ask, could one of these things be taken away for five minutes? And I sit in silence like Mary at the foot and just hold what I don't understand about my own life in the presence of God for a moment. You don't just even say anything. Mary's life and the pages of Scripture teach us that we don't even have to say anything, nor do we have to understand anything. We just have to sit at his feet and something outrageous happens. He got the stamina to keep going. But communicating with Jesus isn't just a personal thing. It's communicating with each other because the person next to you is part of the body of Christ. How are we doing communicating with each other? Do we reach out? Do we respond when other people reach out? Do we think about other people, their birthdays, their anniversaries, this, that, and the other thing? Do we reach out just to say hi anymore? I think the women do a pretty good job of this. I don't know that we do. Well, you, you all know I hate a group text, but I'm about ready to tolerate them if it means people are talking to each other right now. That's as far as I'm willing to go. To the eighth circle of hell. With a green text. Yes. With, with somebody using an Android so no one else can leave the conversation. Thank you very much. Conspiracy theorists using Androids. Tim, you got an Android? No. You have an iPhone? Yes. That is shocking. iPhone <laughs> <laughs> 2. Yeah. Even the government now won't try to tap into an iPhone 1. So Tim is safe. Communicate with each other. And don't wait to be communicated to. Go after it. Say hi to somebody. Literally, honest to God, right when you go home, think back. So the last time that in one week, listen to me, in a, in a seven-day period, you proactively reached out to three different people. It's possible you might think back to 2018. If you're responding to somebody, it doesn't count. I'm talking about proactively reaching out to somebody, three different people, which is not a lot. It takes about 15 seconds to do it. You can do it on the toilet. And... <laughs> Henry Nouwen says this. Henry Nouwen says this in another letter. If you're getting, if you're getting any hello, I love you text messages from me anywhere between 6 a.m. and 7:30, don't imagine where I am. Just, just be happy. Henry Nouwen says to another parishioner, in your letter you say that you cannot pray anymore. In your letter you say that you cannot pray anymore. I'd really like to encourage you to continue to pray. 
but to let your prayer be the prayer of a poor man. Prayer which doesn't offer much satisfaction or insight, but is nothing but a simple being present to the one who came as we are, suffered like we do, and offers us his own poverty as a source of consolation and comfort. You really don't have to do anything more than say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or, Lord, make haste to help me. And with the eyes of your heart, keep looking at him who is stripped of all human supports to offer you hope in the midst of the despair that you're going through, a light in the midst of your darkness today. But also, be that for other people in this church. And start with this church. The river of life flows from where to where? It flows from the sanctuary out into the world. Start here. Branch out. He says that he wants us to be men of penance, not men of eloquence. And I want to just, I'm going to say this very fast. When we're, we are to live as penitent sinners. But what this doesn't mean, think of the difference here. Lord, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm terrible, I'm sinful, I don't know anything good, I'm a wretch, I'm this, I'm that. That is a very toxic way to be penitent. Here's a better way. I'm empty without you. I'm lost if you don't find me today. I have no power if you don't empower me today. I'm helpless if you don't help me today. There's a difference between repentance that is always... Uh, talking smack about yourself so bad and then the worst you say about yourself maybe the more he'll forgive you There's, that's not, get rid of that there's a way of saying I have no food if you're not my food today I'm hungry if you don't give me food I'm thirsty if you don't give me drink I'm powerless if your spirit doesn't empower me I'm not interested in anything other than myself today if you don't interest me Make other people interesting to me today. Make the things I don't want to do enjoyable for me today. That's a humble prayer. That's a penitent prayer. But you don't have to beat the daylights out of yourself to be penitent. God doesn't want us calling not good what he calls good. Amen? Amen. Self-immolation. That's a real old school Catholic phrase. Self-immolation. Simply... But immolation, when, when he said it, was not just like self-sacrifice, but specifically self-sacrifice through fire. And what he's saying is this. Finish the sentence. We are a royal priest. We are priests. So, I'm going to say this as quickly as possible. We... There's all this debate, like, say, like, in the environmental crisis or in the social justice crisis... There's all this talk about, like, we have to repent of the sins that other people committed. And there's all this debate about whether or not that's what we're supposed to do. Here's the thing. I think that whole conversation is saying the wrong things. Okay? Our job is to be priests. And here's what a priest's job is. Here's what my job is over your lives, and thus is a revelation to you of what your job is over everybody's life as a royal priesthood. Okay? Okay? I'm not supposed to repent of all of your sins. Thank God, because I have enough of mine. Ten from today. 
but I am responsible for you. There's a difference between being culpable and being responsible. So I'm not, me physically, personally, I'm not culpable for like, say, the sin of direct slavery. But as a priest in the earth, I'm responsible for what has happened and bringing it before God and allowing myself to stand in his judgment over that for the people like Moses did, like Aaron did, like Abraham did, like Jesus did, like Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and the apostles of the church always did, like priests across the world continue to do. Right? You see the difference, though? And that difference is tough, but it is the difference, is there's a difference between being culpable and yet taking responsibility. We are meant to take responsibility for each other. We're meant to take responsibility for our church, for each other, for our families, for our jobs. If somebody's doing something they shouldn't be doing, if you turn around and say, well, that's not my sin, you are not being priestly. And for everybody who said, why do you have to wear a collar? I'll keep wearing one until we get this right. We have to take responsibility for each other. And that looks like standing with somebody else in God's judgment over what's happening and bearing it with him like priests do. We cannot say we want to be in the image of Jesus and not want to be a shepherd and not want to be a priest. We can't be in the image of Jesus and only want to be a king. That's nonsense. This king is also a priest and a shepherd. He walks through poopies and he stands there and takes the blast for other people's sins. And he takes Mary to his home. This is the identity of the one who we're supposed to be identifying with. So we have to be responsible. Take responsibility for this local church as long as you're called to be here. And help it become what it's supposed to be in this crisis of indifference that is going on right now. He says, open the gates of grace and not indifference. This is simple. Pray that God re-interests you again. And not just in his life privately, but in the life of people publicly. Make me interested in... I, I had somebody say to me this week, Pastor, I have trouble going to these extra events because I just want to relax. And I thought, wow, I've come very far in my life for somebody to actually say that to me. They trust me. That's good. But it's like, my thought was, I agree with you. But let's get to the place where being with each other is relaxing. <laughs> let's get to the place where it's not relaxing to not see each other for two, three, four straight weeks. Let me get to the place where I need Grady to stop by the house, sit in the garage with me, and smoke, sit there and talk for a little while together. You know. Have Sprite. No, no weed. You know, it has, we have to get to the point where it's not relaxing until those things happen. And finally, before we come to the table, men, this is so, oh, God, I want to spend hours. I'll spend seconds. Fervor and sacrifice. So, if, if you think of somebody in the Bible who was fervent and zealous, who is somebody that we think of right away? David. Huh? David. David? That's a good one. Who else was zealous for God? 
Maybe a guy who pinned people down with a spear. Saul. Phineas. Josiah. Josiah. There's hundreds. And here's what this guy says. Be fervent and sacrificial. So look at this. Let's just take one of them. Let's take David or let's take Phineas. Phineas was zealous. He saw what was wrong in Israel and he pinned people to the ground. Hey, listen to me. His worldview was good. His method wasn't. Right? Fundamentalism lives more in Phineas than it does in Jesus. He wants to pin to the ground everybody who's doing evil. I literally saw a pastor on, on the internet destroying a Barbie dream house with a baseball bat that was called the Bible. What are we doing? Be fervent and sacrificial. Okay? Be fervent. Want to pin it to the ground, but die for it instead. This is why Jesus lived in the zeal of Phineas and David, but in the method of his father. He took the zeal and the desire to want to see cleansing and purging and health and holiness, but instead he got pinned to the floor. He died on the mountain. Right? We have to be fervent and sacrificial. So let's pray. Let's, why don't we stand up and why don't you guys just come forward? If you know the responses, you can say them. If you don't, it's okay. Let's just take 30 seconds. And literally, we're at the foot of the cross. We're about to interact with the presence of God. I want you to catch the spirit of all of this. The spirit of devotion, the spirit of adoration. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Let's say this together if you know it. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And when we have fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. Would you just picture that? Jesus said, in the same way that the serpent was lifted up, he was lifted up, which means whoever looks at him is healed. Picture that. 
On the night he was handed over to suffering death, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine. And there is wine in here. Yes. (laughs) And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith, saying together, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And this is praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Offer him your life right now. Offer him who you are. Recommit your life to the Lord. Let's just take about a few minutes. And if anybody feels led to pray for anything, if anything's been on your mind during this, one or two or three people, pray. Let's practice praying out loud. If there's anything you feel led to pray about at all, pray about it. Thank you, Father, for this time together with men in the church, Lord. I do pray that uh, the issue that Pastor brought up today about lack of communication between ourselves and the church, Lord, that we would take that to heart, Lord. I myself have been guilty of that. I feel convicted about it, Lord. Lord, just uh, gently remind us, Holy Spirit, that uh, even if we don't think it's important, as Bill said, even Jesus needs to know that we love him. Yes. And so how much more are our brothers in Christ, mm. Lord, Father, God. So, Lord, keep, keep us aware of that at all times. Help us to maybe just do something as simple as respond immediately to a text or a call mm. so it doesn't get left in the business yeah. of the day and uh, become a, a big misunderstanding or whatever it may be, Lord. Help us to be responsible for that for each other. Thank you, Lord, for the story and the picture of Bishop Beth dreaming about you when she was a child in the woods and thinking about how she would hold your hand. And I just pray that us as men would be able to transport ourselves back into a time when there wasn't as much stress in our lives and we dreamed and we had innocent thoughts about you. And that we would return to dreaming about you. And the things that you have for us and our relationship with you. And we pray that that picture and that story would be alive in the, in the children of the church, Lord, that, that those experiences would still happen yes. and your yes. church would continue and flourish and grow through you simply holding a child's hand and that, and that thought and that dream, Lord. We just pray that we, as men, would be able to transport ourselves back to that, and that you would do that in the, in the kids in the church now. We would still be doing that today. Yeah. Help us to re- recover the humanity, Laura, and more important, the humanity, that we recover our manhood, the manhood that was created, the manhood that expressed Christ on the cross. 
because that's the only way we can die for one another and make us completely vulnerable. When you touch our hearts, that will receive you. When you tell us to, and you ask the questions that we love you, that we, we will offer everything that is inside of us, but we need to recover what was created in us, that we throw it away into the world, bring that light of Christ again inside of us. Lord, we pray that we would love the brotherhood of our God. And yes. yes. That we'd be compassionate towards one another and yes. quick to forgive, Lord God. Mm-hmm. And quick to sow our lives into, into the lives of others. <laughs> yes. Anoint us, Lord God, to, yes. to have that clothing of compassion and mercy and grace towards others. Yes, Lord. Why don't you all stretch your hands forward toward the table because this is not just the work of a pastor. This is the work of the people, the work that God is gracing us to give is to bless this meal together so that it becomes something more than it is so that we can be empowered to bless each other so that we could fully become our true selves. Sanctify these gifts by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and the blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also, that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the peace. Take this bread and this cup in remembrance that Christ has died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. This is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. This is the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.